Thank you so much. Steve, I can only apologise for my wife's comments to you. <laughs> Your legs look fine just the way they are. I was also really glad she said that you can buy scones as well as scones, because I wasn't quite sure what she was talking about before. So that was, uh, that was, a, that was good. Also, um, I, I know we've got a number of teams in other places. So we've got some guys in Switzerland. And apparently each year, this is a, like a leaders weekend, like a leaders retreat they do every year. And they, they have an evening where they have like a hog roast and a fancy dress party. And apparently last year, the two leaders of the church came as a pantomime horse. Yeah. And um, so this year, the, the theme is, is wearing hats from different nations. So PJ and the team, they've all had to take different hats to wear on this particular evening. So I want you to know, I've paid good money to get photographs of that particular evening. <laughs> And where I can, I will try and show them to you the next time I preach. So there you go. It's something to look forward to. Um, so do be praying for those guys. And, and also, I know Simon just sent me a quick snippet of one story, which, again, would love to hear more about. He's in Scotland, and he just sent me this text the other night. He said, wow, we had a guy with a blind left eye who can now see. Wow. He said, he cannot yet see perfectly, but he can read letters on my shirt and see people across the room. Wow. He's been blind in that eye for two and a half years. Isn't that amazing? Oh my goodness. <clears throat> blind eyes are opening in Scotland. <clears throat> amazing. Hmm. So we are this morning carrying on our incomparable series. And let me tell you, when you try and describe God in only six pages of notes, it's really, really difficult. <laughs> I'm just saying that so I can get your sympathy this morning. So uh, why don't you just close your eyes. We're going to take a moment to pray, and then we're going to dive straight in. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We just invite you here, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are the spirit of wisdom and revelation in our knowledge of God. And so we just say, Holy Spirit, you are so welcome here. Thank you for the revelation that's already flowing in this room. And we just pray, Lord, as we come to your word, let your word paint massive pictures of the reality of our God. Lord, write them on the canvas of our hearts. Pray that we'd see technicolor pictures of who you really are this morning. Father, where perhaps some of us right now are seeing you in black and white, I pray that you'd switch on the color this morning. Switch on the technicolor vision of who our God really is. Captivate us afresh. Fill our worship with fresh visions of who you are. We say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Do you understand that God is magnetically attracted to your hunger? Which is why these moments are not just incidental moments. These moments are like magnets to the very presence of God. As we say, I'm not just kind of going to come into this room and leave unchanged. I'm going to come and have my hunger draw God into an encounter in this place. So just invite him to come close. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your presence here. Lord, let revelation flow as we come to your words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever wondered, what is, what is the key to living a fruitful Christian life? Well, I want to suggest to you that the very first four words of the Bible give you a great big whacking clue about the key to the Christian life. What are the first four words in the Bible? In the beginning, God. God. Right, there is a great big clue to you and I about how you live a fruitful life. In the beginning, God. 
Okay, it starts with God, it ends with God, it flows from God. Here's the source. It all begins with God. And as my friend Joel, I heard him say once, he said, we need to be the kind of people who don't just say, wow, God, you're really amazing, but actually learn to say some amazing things about God. So it's easy, isn't it, just to kind of, kind of trot out phrases. Well, God's really amazing. He's really amazing. Is he? Well, tell me about him. What's he like? Because as A.W. Tozer said, what you think about God is probably the single most important thing about you. What you think about God is the single most important thing about you because all of our behavior flows from our belief system. Ultimately, you end up becoming like the one that you behold. Because actually, whoever you are here this morning, whether you say you know Jesus or not, whether you're fairly a new Christian or you've been a Christian for many, many years, ultimately all of us are born as worshippers. You are put in this planet to worship. And you are worshipping something. <laughs> you are worshipping whatever you give your time, your money, your affection, your adoration, your time, your priorities too. Those things tell us the kind of things that you worship, but ultimately you always end up becoming like the one you behold. And that's why what you think about God is the single most important thing about you because who you believe he is will determine the whole rest of your life. In the beginning, God. So the question for you this morning is, what thoughts are you thinking about God? Who do you say that he is? What fills your heart, what fills your mind when you come to worship with this kind of songs that we've been singing this morning? I stand in awe and worship. Do you? Why do you? Don't just say God's amazing. Learn some amazing things about God. Because ultimately, that will end up defining the kind of life that you live. If you live amazed with God, you will live an amazing life. <laughs> I thought that was an excellent point. <laughs> if you live amazed with God, you will live an amazing life. Because it all flows out of Him being there in the beginning read this little story which I thought was cool of a mother who suddenly a thunderstorm started to hit the area that she was living in the States and she remembered her seven-year-old daughter was walking home from her, the nearby school a few blocks away and she thought, I'm going to go and pick her up because there's, there's just this thunderstorm happening and line, uh, uh, rain and lightning and thunder and so she got in the car and kind of went to find her daughter and she saw her daughter standing at the edge of the road with a massive grin on her face looking up in the sky and every time there was a flash of lightning, her face just lit up. And her mum got out of the car and she said, what are you doing? What are you doing? She said, God's taking my picture. God's taking my picture. Tell you, who you believe God is defines the rest of life. You know, I was, just, I was reading this story just in, in the break between services. Some, some of you will have heard of um, a number of Coptic Christians in Egypt who uh, were martyred this week. A, a bomb blew up on the bus that they were in. 25 people lost their lives. And uh, they are um, known as a very highly persecuted group of Christians on the planet right now. And I was just reading this story uh, of a, a month or so ago where uh, another incident had happened where a suicide bomber had blown himself up near a Christian church. And there was a news report on television and there's a, a news presenter called Amir Adib and he was watching the wife of the security guard who was the first person to die in that suicide attack who was a Coptic Christian. He believed in Jesus. And Amir uh, Adib was a Muslim, he wasn't a Christian and uh, 
he was watching this uh, wife be interviewed um, of the security guard, and this is what she said. She said, I am not angry at the one who did this, said his wife, children by her side. I am telling that man, may God forgive you, and we also forgive you. Believe me, we forgive you. You put my husband in a place I could never have dreamed of. And then the news report says this, stunned, Adib, who's the news presenter, stammered about Coptics bearing atrocities over hundreds of years. And he said, how great is this forgiveness that you have? His voice cracked. If it were my father, I could never say this, but this is the faith that you have. In the beginning, God. Who you say he is determines everything else. Determines your ability to forgive to love your enemies, to prioritise him. It all flows from the source. It flows from your understanding of who he is. And yet here's the thing about human nature. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. By human nature, we always tend to try and reduce God down to manageable terms so that he ends up looking just a little bit like us. <laughs> Left to our own devices, we end up creating God in our own image rather than understanding that we are created in his image. If your God looks just like a little polished up version of you, you haven't got the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is completely other than you or I. And I want to suggest to you that if we are going to recover the wonder of worship, we need to get in touch again with the otherness of God. That he is not like your eye. He is on a completely different scale, a completely different magnitude. He is incomparable. He is immeasurable. He is incomprehensible. And if God doesn't at times completely baffle you, then you have not yet got the God of the Bible. If you can explain God and write down what he's like in six pages of notes, you've not yet understood him. Because he is other than you or I. And when you really start to get in touch with a revelation of who this other God is, it will undo you completely. And Isaiah in Scripture is one of those men who had this encounter with the otherness of God. He saw God in his extreme otherness and it completely rocked his world. And Isaiah was probably the most favoured prophet in Hebrew literature. He was the prophet that was most often quoted. He was a very, very brilliant man in his generation. He served under four different kings. And he was a, he was a brilliant poet, songwriter, storyteller. Remember, in that particular day, Jewish culture was an oral culture, so you, you told your stories through story, storytelling. That's how the culture worked. And he probably was one of the most genius storytellers of his generation. Let me tell you, if you write a book and people are still discussing it in 3,000 years' time, you are in genius territory. And that's Isaiah. He was a genius. He was like a star in his generation. And he is a man who one day finds himself seeking God and he has this encounter in the heavenly realms where he suddenly sees who God really is. And here's what we read. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, these strange heavenly creatures, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. Have you ever had an encounter with God like that? I'm ruined. (laughs) For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. First thing that Isaiah sees in this encounter with the otherness of God is the nature of God as eternal. He says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It's this amazing comparison. Now, Uzziah was a very good king, actually, in Israel. For most of his life, he led the nation very, very well, right up until the end. Now, just a side note here. The enemy doesn't mind when he takes you out, but often he will try and wait to your later years to take you out so that the consequences are more severe. Do you understand that? That's what happened to Uzziah. Uzziah led faithfully for many years, and yet right at the end, he dropped the ball. Let me tell you, midlife crisis is not just about biology and chemistry. Midlife crisis can often be about an enemy strategy that's designed to derail not just you, but also your family, and those around you in your sphere of influence. It's a spiritual scheme. It's a principality that's at work. And in King Uzziah's life, he led faithfully for many years, and right at the end, he blew it, and he gave himself to idolatry. And this is the context. King Uzziah has died, and yet Uzziah sees the Lord. The reality is kings die. You die. I will die. Our life will one day cease to be. But he is the eternal God. He goes from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is other than you. He is the pre-existent one who had no beginning, who has no end, is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He is the uncreated one. The uncreated one. I love what this little boy prayed one day. He said, dear God, my grandpa says you were around when he was a little boy. How far back do you go? God goes back an awful long way. In fact, he goes back such a long way that God was around before he actually created time itself. Do you understand that time and space are themselves created things by God? He stands outside of the things that he has created. Therefore, God is not subject to the space-time continuum. He stands outside of time. So that when God thinks and when God acts, he doesn't do so in a linear progression like you or I. You know, when you got up this morning, you may have thought, I'm going to have, a, have my breakfast at eight o'clock, I'm going to have my lunch at half past one, and then my tea at six o'clock this evening. Do you understand that for God, he doesn't think in a linear way like that because he is outside of time because he is the uncreated one. Therefore, for God, his breakfast, his luncheon and dinner happen exactly the same time. Because he's outside of time, because he created it. He is the eternal one. He is not subject to decay. He is not subject to uh, being thrown off course, because he has always been. 
He's always existed. He's the self-sufficient one. To God, a thousand years are like yesterday. That means he knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows what's going to happen in a thousand years' time. He knows what was going to happen 2,000 years ago. And in fact, when the writer to the Revelation writes about Jesus, it says, I saw Jesus looking like a lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Just think about that for a moment. What is the writer to the Revelation seeing? He said, I could see Jesus before Ben Nevis was put in place or, or Snowden or the Lake District or Bedford. Before any of these things were put in place, I saw Jesus looking as if he'd already gone to the cross in eternity past. Because what happens to God is that eternity past, eternity present and eternity future are all simultaneously in one time and space because he's eternal God. And actually, he predetermined, he looked into eternity future, saw that you and I would need rescuing, and determined that he would send his son before he even created the first planet in the sky. Wow. <laughs> Here's the eternal God. He goes from everlasting to everlasting. You ever ask the question, when did love first begin? When was it first created? First century? Second century? Love never had a beginning because God is love. When did community have its beginning? Community was not invented by you or I. It was not invented in this civilization. Community is eternal because God exists in eternal community, Father, Son, Spirit. Community never had a beginning <laughs> because it's found in the person of God who is eternal. And this is what Isaiah sees. He, you are other than me. You are the eternal God. Secondly, he sees this, that God is sovereign. He said, I saw him seated on a throne. I love this. It's this picture of God as our sovereign king. And he is so untroubled and so unrivaled in his kingly sovereignty that he rules everything by sitting down. He, just, he sits down. He, he does everything from a position of absolute rest, absolute peace, absolute serenity, absolute confidence. He sits down. He, at the same time as feeding the sparrows and aligning all the stars, he, he sat in perfect serenity, ruling as unrivaled king. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have a lot of responsibilities, that's not a picture of my life. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of juggling, I'm kind of making my to-do list, I'm ticking things off, I'm trying to do this over here, I'm trying to do that over there, and, oh, I need to get over there. That's what my life looks like when I'm trying to rule stuff in my world. But God sits down. He sits on the throne. <clears throat> Do you know that scientists now reckon that there are over two trillion galaxies in the observable known universe? That's just in the observable universe. Two trillion, stretching back 13.7 billion light years. A hundred million stars are in the average galaxy. So two trillion galaxies. In every galaxy, there's an average probably of a hundred million stars. Throw into that the issues of dark matter, galactic rotation, and the fact that the universe is constantly expanding, it's very, very difficult to get a precise number on the number of stars that are in the known universe in those two trillion galaxies. And yet, this is what Psalm 147 says. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Scientists reckon if you were to write a number, it would be a one with 24 zeros after it. That's the number of stars in the known universe. 
And yet Psalm 147 simply says, he knows them each by name. (laughs) Isaiah says this, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. (laughs) And do you understand that God is not kind of thinking, right, what's that star called again? Ursula Major or Ursula Minor? I just can't remember. There's so many that I've got to remember. God doesn't have to search around for knowledge. God knows everything in one simultaneous and eternal act, which is amazing in that he also understands his own nature, which is itself infinite. And that is it all by sitting on a throne. This is who Isaiah sees. This is what God is like. He is other than you or I. And do you know what? There may be a thousand things that make you fearful in this world, but here is one truth that should make you very cheerful. Your king is on a throne. He is not anxious about how things are going to turn out. He is utterly at peace. Therefore, you can sleep in peace. Psalm 4 verse 8 says, At night I, I lay down, I sleep in peace, because you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You can have, that's why Jesus could fall asleep in a boat in the middle of a raging storm because he was connected to who his father really was. You're seated, therefore so can I be. Thirdly, Isaiah sees the victory of God. He sees this interesting image. He says, I saw the train of his robe and it filled the temple. Do you know that the longest wedding dress ever made in the history of the world was 1.85 miles long. That's a long wedding dress right there. There it is. This, this was in Romania. This is Bucharest. And when they kind of shot this, literally the train of her robe filled the whole of Bucharest. It went all the way through the city. 1.85 miles long. It took 1,857 sewing needles to put that wedding dress together and over 100 days to make it. And this is kind of the picture that Isaiah is seeing as he sees this heavenly vision of what God is like. He says, I saw the train of his robe fill the temple. I mean, just imagine you, you, the next wedding that you go to. Okay? You're, you're waiting for the bride. She's fashionably late. You know, everyone's there. You're all gathered. You're waiting with your camera to kind of take a picture of her dress and see what it's like. And then she arrives and dun, 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 dun. and in she comes and you stand and you're looking and you're, wow, isn't the bride beautiful? But as she comes and sits at the front of the meeting, you realise that the train of her robe is just coming in and coming in. And it just keeps on going and going and going and going. And pretty soon the front, front few rows, they have to start vacating their seats because there's not room for you and the robe. Some, something's got to move out of the way. And pretty soon the whole room has to evacuate because the train of the robe is just coming in and coming in and coming in and eventually it just fills the room it fills the temple and that's the picture that Isaiah is seeing here it's like this this picture of just extravagant glory filling the temple and the thing about robes in scripture is that robes always signify victory and authority in scripture if you're a king and you wore a robe it signified I have authority to rule and this is a sign of my victory as a king and in the ancient world in which Isaiah was living The longer your robe as a king, the more victories you had had. Because what you would do if you were a king in the ancient world, if you conquered another king or another territory, you would break off a piece of his robe and you would attach it to your own. As a sign, I have vanquished my enemy and I am a victor. And so therefore, the longer your robe, the greater your victories. This is what Isaiah is seeing. 
the train of your robe just keeps coming in, coming in, coming in, because you are the victorious God. It's also interesting where the train of God's robe fills. It fills a temple. What do temples signify in Scripture? Temples always signify places of worship. And this is what Isaiah is seeing. He's seeing the victory of God come into the place of worship until all you can see is God's victory. All you can see is the authority of God. And so much so that everything else just starts to get dislodged and has to make room for the victory that's coming through the doors. This is what he's seeing. What's even more amazing is that for Isaiah, a temple was a physical sacred place that you would go to and worship. You would literally go to the temple and sing songs. You'd go to the building and worship. This is what he's seeing. But in the new covenant, we understand this, that God no longer occupies sacred places. He occupies sacred people. You are the temple. What was Isaiah seeing? He was seeing the victory of God fill your life, fill my life. So much so that every other thing in our life has to dislodge and make way for the victory of the king when he comes in. That's what Isaiah is seeing. And the victory just keeps coming in and coming in and coming in. And pretty soon, you know, that fear has got to go because the victory of God's coming in. You know, that shame that I used to feel has got to make way because the victory of God in Christ is coming into my life. Those other things that used to bug me and define me, suddenly I've got to make room because the victory is coming in. And it just keeps coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in because it's eternal. It's an eternal victory. This is what Isaiah is saying. You are the victorious one. This is what Romans 8 says. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, nor even the powers of hell can separate you from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the victory right there. And Isaiah sees, when you see who God is, when you see that he is the victorious God, suddenly it defines how worship is meant to be. It fills the place of worship and you can never be the same again. Some of you may come in here and think, why do you get so excited? Because the place of worship is a place where we remember the victory of God in Christ. It's an eternal victory. Next, Isaiah sees this. He says he sees these strange creatures called the seraphim flying above the throne of God and they're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And that word holy is just a beautifully rich word in scripture. And and really it means the perfection and the beauty of God's nature. That's what holy means. It means God is is the quintessence of perfection. When you define beauty, you look at God to define beauty. He's the one that defines what is beautiful. Do you know that you know, Vogue and the glossy magazine on the dentist waiting room does not define what beauty is. Beauty is defined by who God is. And when you find in other people what you find in God, you find what is truly breathtakingly beautiful. That's why people who've been around Jesus are some of the most beautiful people on the whole planet. 
Because it's not about this, it's about this. Yeah. <laughs> Holy, holiness talks about the beauty, the perfection of God's character. And this phrase, holy, 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 is a fascinating phrase in Hebrew writing. Because in Hebrew writing, if you wanted to emphasize that something was really great rather than just great, you would repeat your word. So for example, you wouldn't say really joyful, you would say joy joy. If you wanted to say something was really peaceful, you would say peace, peace. So in Isaiah 26, for example, it says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. The word in Hebrew is actually, you will keep him in peace, peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Because in Hebrew literature, if you wanted to emphasize something was really good, you would repeat the word, joy, joy, peace, peace, love, love. That's how it works. Now, in Scripture, only two places are, are a word mentioned three times. And on both occasions, it's the same word that's mentioned three times. Holy, holy, holy. And those two occasions are separated by 800 years in your Bible. One is here in Isaiah chapter 6, and one is later in Revelation chapter 4. And on both occasions, the angels are saying the same thing when they get around God's throne. Holy, holy, holy. If you were to ask the angels what's on the news agenda in heaven today, this would be their answer. Holy, holy, holy. Right. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, as Christians that, and just as human beings, familiarity can breed contempt. It's very often the people that you are most familiar with in your life that you stop celebrating. It's why also sometimes the people that you are most familiar with are the people that you're cruelest to. Because you get familiar with what is good around your life. You end up criticizing what is good in your life. You end up pointing the finger at the things that actually are gifts from God to you in your life. Familiarity breeds contempt. It can breed contempt in even our worship times together. And we think, I've heard that song a hundred times before. I'm so familiar with that. And yet, if you were to ask the angels after 800 years, what is still captivating your attention? They would say, the holiness of God. He is so beautiful, I cannot get my eyes off of him. See, I wonder this morning whether you worship God for what he can do for you or whether you worship God for who he is. I love what Paul Manwaring says about this scripture. He says he imagines the angels circling around the infinite, eternal nature of God. And as they go through eternity and as they're looking at different aspects of the nature of God, each time they see something new, it's like they cannot help themselves but say, holy or holy moly. Oh my goodness, you are so beautiful. And then they take another step round. Oh my goodness, holy, holy. And each time they move around the character and the person of God, they have to keep pausing and stopping and exclaiming, holy, 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 you are beautiful, you are perfect, you are breathtaking. And the fact is, in all eternity, you will never get bored with the person of God. Sometimes I hear Christians say to me, I'm just a bit bored with God right now. Really? Really? I tell you, the issue is not on God's side of the equation. It really isn't. Sometimes people, I'm a bit bored with church. You know, I'd like to do church a different way. I, you know, a bit bored. Really? I know church isn't perfect, but I tell you, there is one who is. And he should constantly be capturing your attention. 
constantly because we're gathering not here, but here, first and foremost. In the beginning, God. That's how it works. You got familiar with him? Maybe what you need is fresh revelation. Like the angels are getting constantly in eternity. Holy, oh, holy, oh, wow, holy. Oh, I nearly fell off the stage, he's so holy. (laughs) (laughs) And then lastly, Isaiah sees the glory of God. He says, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temples filled with smoke. And again, this Hebrew word glory is an interesting word because it means weighty. And it talks about the permanence of God. That he is the most permanent reality that you can ever find in this universe or outside of it. He is permanent. He is glorious. Do you understand that there are weighty realities and then there are more weighty realities? How many of you understand that water is a reality? It's not a trick question. It is. Water is a reality. How many of you understand that a rock is a reality? How many of you also stand that if you drop a great big whacking rock in the middle of a bowl of water, one reality is going to displace the other? Both are real, but one is more weighty. And that is what Isaiah is seeing. He's seeing the glory of God fill the earth, the permanent weighty reality of who God is, and that when God reveals himself in glory, everything gets shaken up. Everything starts to get displaced. Other realities get displaced by the greater reality of who God is. That's why when worshippers come face to face with God in Scripture, even John, who's described as the disciple that Jesus loved, he was Jesus' best buddy on the earth. And yet it says, when he met Jesus in Revelation, he fell on his face as though dead. Because that's what happens when you meet Jesus in his glory. It's the friendship and the fear. It's the intimacy, but the adoration. It's that I approach you and yet I bow down low. And whoever they are, whether it was Moses, whether it was Abraham, I mean, God had to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock to save his life because he knew that if he saw the glory of God, then he would cease to exist. That's what happens when the permanent reality of God's glory comes. Things get shaken, they get displaced. I love this story. This is a story of the life of Smith Wigglesworth, who was a a Pentecostal preacher at the beginning of the 20th century. And he was tremendously used by God in seeing miracles and signs and wonders. And he was a man who learned what it was to work with the glory of God and see the reality of his glory invade the reality of this world. And here is one story where he sent to the home of a man called Matthew And Matthew is uh, dying from a heart condition. He's been sent home. He's dying in his his bed at home. And Wigglesworth goes to pray for him. And uh, I'll read you the encounter. Wigglesworth said to Matthew, when I place my hands on you, the glory of God is going to fill this place until I shall not be able to stand anymore. He then asked Matthew's parents to put his socks on. (laughs) I have no idea why. And then requested that they leave the room and close the door behind them so that he could be shut in with God. Gazing at Matthew's motionless, wheezing body, he placed his hands on him. He said, as I touched the young man, the power of God filled the room. And it was so powerful that I fell to the floor. My nose and my mouth were touching the floor and I lay there in the glory of God for a quarter of an hour. 
All that while, Matthew in the bed was shouting, Lord, this is for your glory. It's for your glory. The whole bed simply began to shake, as did every other thing in the room by the power of God. Matthew's strength, his life and his heart, which was considered the weakest thing about him, were all instantly renewed. I was still on the floor in the glory of God when he got out of his bed and began to get dressed. After he was dressed, he began to walk up and down the room shouting, I'm raised up for your glory. I'm raised up for your glory. Opening the door, he shouted, Dad, God has healed me. I'm healed. And the glory of God filled the kitchen downstairs. The father and mother instantly fell face down. And the daughter who'd been brought from the asylum and whose mind was still affected was made perfectly whole that moment. That moment. This is God in his glory. See, when you encounter God in his glory, you can't just tack him on your life. You know, sometimes we think, oh, yeah, I quite like the Christian philosophy. Love your neighbours, yourself. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to just go tack that on to my existing worldview. Have that here. I'm going to carry on living how I want to live, but I'm going to just tack that bit. And I really like that bit. You know, I love it when Jesus is there for me. But you know, the God of glory, you can't just tack him onto your life. He subsumes everything else. He, he, he hasn't come just to take a corner. He's come to take over. <laughs> He's come to take over. And that's why Isaiah says, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. Everything is going to change from this moment on because the God of glory has come on the page. He displaces other realities, the God of glory. And you know, as we come to worship, perhaps the band could quickly just pop up that'd be great the reality is unless you understand the otherness of God you don't understand the wonder of the gospel so grace is not amazing until you understand the one who saved you and what you've been saved from and unless we recapture a vision of God in his otherness, in his glory, his holiness, his eternal nature. Actually, we won't fully appreciate the grace of God because this is the grace of God, that Jesus is this eternal God that Isaiah sees. And yet it's this same Jesus who John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The God who created time and space entered time and space. This God who is the Holy One, the perfect one. Scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah says he's the God of victory whose train fills the temple. Jesus' victory was in sacrifice through the shedding of his blood, laying down his crown and taking on a crown of thorns. This is the victory of God in Christ Jesus. This is the glory of God, that the God who Isaiah saw in his glory is also the God who enters our lives. And he says, I've come for you. I've come for you. I've come to draw you into my presence, draw you into the eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit. Read a tweet again in the break. Tim Keller says, you know, you cannot live with God. You cannot live without him. And Isaiah, this is what happens in this moment. He realized, I can't live with God in the state that I'm currently in. But I can't live without him either. And in this encounter, Isaiah gets this picture of what happens in Jesus. That Jesus reconciles us to the Father. 
He puts us back in relationship with him. He does what nothing else could ever do. He puts you in right relationship with this magnificent, eternal king. And now you have free access. And that's the glory of the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Wow.